Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with Susanna L. Blumenthal, Professor of Law and Associate Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. Her book, The Law and the Modern Mind, Consciousness and Responsibility in American Legal Culture, published by Harvard University Press, won the 2017 Merle Curdy Prize from the Organization of American Historians. Blumenthal offers a historical examination of the jurisprudence of insanity, legal capacity, and accountability from revolutionary America through the 19th century. Americans struggling to set the boundaries of ordered liberty turned to the common-sense philosophy that held to divinely given rational faculties of intellect, volition, and moral sense. Republican citizenship assumed that a reasonable man as a legal person would act accordingly. The market economy of self-made men, the new field of medical psychology, will and contract challenges over wealth and property, tort law, and increased liability claims expose the inadequacy of social and political norms in defining human fallibility and the limits of responsibility. Litigants, lawyers, judges, and medical experts struggle to find a reliable way to settle issues of mental competency and define the bounds of freedom. The incapacity of married women, children, and slaves provided a means of comparison for the male citizen involving metaphysical, political, social, and economic ideas wrapped up in the concept of self-government. Blumenthal has produced a remarkable piece of intellectual and legal history situated in the rapidly changing market environment of a young republic. Here's my conversation with Susanna Blumenthal. Now let me introduce you to the author, Susanna Blumenthal. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience, and congratulations on receiving the Merle Curdy Award for your ambitious book. It's a great book. (laughs) It's fun to write. A fun project and uh, a lot of things uh, to kind of explore um, and difficult and challenging to finally put them in the confines of a book, actually. So, Okay, so tell us, before we get into the book, tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Law in the Modern Mind. Well, I uh, kind of took a circuitous path to becoming a legal historian. Uh, I started out uh, being interested in college and the history of ideas, uh, and then spent some time thinking I should have studied philosophy, so I spent a year studying analytic philosophy at Oxford, which sent me running to law school because I wanted to find some kind of intellectual space where I could think about the practical implications of ideas, and that seemed to be law school, and then almost immediately upon arriving in law school, the sort of yearning for engagement with uh, ideas again in the historical context, um, which uh, led me to the history department. And so I did a very integrated 
uh, course of study there, um, uh, working with David Brian Davis in the history department as my dissertation advisor. I know a lot of wonderful people, both in the history department and the law school, that helped me kind of cobble together a plan of study that enabled me to really think hard and long about these philosophical problems in historical and legal context. Uh, and this book is um, a kind of culmination of a lot of years of thinking about some of these issues um, uh, and, and trying to wrestle with uh, um, the sort of cultural meanings that attach to sort of concepts of free will and determinism um, uh, in really very practical everyday uh, uh, legal contexts. And so having the training in both of those areas uh, enabled me to really sort of pursue some questions that have been kind of long preoccupying me. Well, The Law and the Modern Mind, you have two sections to the book. In the first section of the book, you kind of give us some background into sort of broader philosophical ideas that were that was going to shape American law in the 19th century. And you talk about, in the first chapter, about uh, British common law and uh, how the British common law viewed uh, the individual and human nature and how Americans sort of uh, went from the law of persons to the American legal subject. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the common law and how American legal system sort of changed a little those definitions? Right. Well, what I'm sort of centrally interested in there is thinking about how um, the kind of revolutionary era, the age of revolution, sort of played out in, in, in uh, specifically legal terms um, and sort of pointing to a kind of central paradox within sort of the American reconceptualization of um, both what law was and, and, and how it sort of thought about personhood. Um, uh, because what, what the revolution sort of stood for in the American context was a throwing off of hierarchical notions of um, different human kinds and, and understanding different human kinds in that uh, kind of um, a sort of ordered way so that there were um, sort of uh, kinds of uh, human types that were superior and inferior, and the egalitarian sort of ethos of the American Revolution reconceptualized this law of persons that was, uh, sort of the English law of persons that was, was hierarchical in form, um, sort of flattened that out um, by sort of valorizing the notion of the autonomous individual. Uh, and so with that as the sort of turning point of, 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 of legal personhood and um, also the hope of self-government that they were um, so committed to um, uh, sort of realizing in this post-revolutionary um, society, uh, the law itself was the locus of this revolutionary um, force, uh, uh, reconstructing a government on the basis of the consent of the people. Um, and all of a sudden it became very obvious, uh, almost painfully obvious, that the competence of the citizenry was going to be absolutely essential to sort of the realization of the revolutionary project. So um, you have this kind of faith in self-government and autonomy uh, of the individual um, bumping up against the sort of uh, challenges of um, uh, creating a responsible citizenry and, uh, and, and, and the perils of getting it wrong because, you know, if, if we can't actually um, uh, ensure that our citizens are competent to, 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 to govern themselves, the whole uh, project will be uh, imperiled. And so you see an immediate concern about, you know, how do we uh, create and ensure um, that our citizens are, in fact, competent? Um, and uh, the 
vision of, of, of competence and freedom is bound up with sort of enlightenment ideas of, ration, of, of rationality. Uh, so, you know, everyone has to be uh, capable of rational action. And yet, very quickly and very obviously, you see the perversities of human nature bubbling to the surface. And the question is, what do we do with the fact of human uh, perversity, uh, as we see it in everyday life, um, does that challenge the basic possibilities of revolutionary progress? And so that's that's the sort of conundrum that these revolutionary leaders are immediately faced with. There's, you know, as soon as we're sort of um, kind of a, 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 a sort of a independent republic, we're also a republic that faces the problem of irrationality in a new um, and kind of terrifying way that, that you know, someone like Benjamin Rush calls anarchia. He thinks he immediately medicalizes it and worries about um, whether we can actually uh, keep people from going uh, off the rails. Now, there's still, though, uh, an assumption, of course, that the free legal subject is male. And so there's always comparisons made between uh, the incapacity of women, slaves, children, servants. And you put in there uh, uh, sailors, which I was like, <laughs> sailors? I didn't know anything about sailors not being incompetent. But okay. So so there's still a hierarchy, and there's this idea of this independent male citizen of the republic. Right. Right? right. And um, you go also, you talk about the shift between – uh, going from Calvinist theology to common sense philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment, how did common sense philosophy uh, view the individual? And that was a pretty—it seemed like a pretty complex sort of uh, way of looking at human beings. Right. Well, there's a couple of questions there, um, and uh, it's obviously very complicated territory in, in a lot of respects. But um, I guess what I would start with is—is is the gendered nature of this philosophical discourse, one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is that there's a kind of um, way in which the language is always um, uh, man that is sometimes meant in the generic sense to encompass both men and women and, you know, all different kinds of people. Um, but it's being written by, this discourse is predominantly being written by men, white men more specifically, and propertyed white men even more specifically, and their own assumptions uh, permeate this discourse. So sometimes they pretend to a kind of universality that they either don't mean or aren't really fully aware of the extent to which they're not really comprehending uh, uh, all forms of, of human nature. Um, and so they sometimes mistake their own uh, cultural perceptions for universal ways of thinking. And so that's just built into this body of literature I mean, it's important to be attentive at all times, and I try very much to foreground the extent to which what they're really talking about when they talk about men is, you know, sometimes um, uh, intended to be more universal, but is always kind of hobbled by their own uh, failure to fully appreciate how uh, blinkered their perspectives are. So there's that gendered element that's terribly important. Um, and But there's also, as you point out, a survival of these status-based notions of thinking about human beings and the legal person. So, you know, even after the revolution, the language of, of egalitarianism has, has built in limitations. Um, they don't mean to apply the ideas of competence and the notions of equality broadly to all men, black and white, and certainly not to women. Um, they, and they understand children uh, to be a separate class as well. So 
all of these categories that were in the common law, these status-based categories that they purported to be throwing off because they represented a traditional and antiquated way of thinking about human beings, don't entirely sort of lose their place, especially as we move into the 19th century and the forces of democratization continually worry more and more the legal elites that aren't too convinced that they want, or maybe sort of having second thoughts about the egalitarianism of, of their, the revolutionary forefathers. And so you see kind of a conservative force uh, overtaking a lot of legal elites um, so that they're actually perfectly happy to still think in hierarchical terms in various ways that are evident in, in the legal treatises. And so there you're referring to sailors because in the treatises they, you know, sound some of the sort of revolutionary uh, ideals and commitments at the outset, but then quickly move to sort of thinking about, well, practically speaking, how are we going to think about different kinds of legal rights and different kinds of legal capacities? And there they continue to carry forward a lot of the relational categories of the common law, master-servant, uh, husband-wife, and children. And so all those categories continue to have life and significance in the way that we structure legal relations and think about who has rights against uh, whom and what circumstances. And so that you also see certain kind of occupational categories like sailors who are differentiated because for a variety of reasons, you know, first of all, they're on these um, ships that have a kind of military um, structure to the work. It's a workplace that is very structured hierarchically, not so distinct from a lot of <laughs> workplaces on land, uh, uh, it has to be said. But there's a kind of almost military command system in which, you know, it's mutiny to sort of oppose your boss in the form of the, the captain. And so there's a lot of ways in which the law is recognizing coercive nature of that space um, by protecting the sailor from, you know, sort of being, you know, we shouldn't treat him as, as in sort of equal uh, bargaining power with, you know, a master in that context, right? So that's why the sailor gets protective treatment in some ways that are not dissimilar from a wife or a child because he is not in complete control of his circumstances. I'm wondering also, is it because sailors are, are dealing with, um, they're going in international, international waters or they're people who don't have a, a permanent resident, you know, they're like, they're nomads in a certain way. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of really tangled jurisdictional questions for sure that you're pointing yeah. to. Thing I would add, though, that I found as a historian of insanity, I suppose, into um, what I am, um, there was uh, a sense that being at sea also messed with your mind, and so there was something about not being on solid ground that actually destabilized the mind, and so there were those that actually articulated and rationalized those kinds of protections in terms of the mind. You know, the, you know, it's almost like you know, thinking about uh, you know, it as, a, as, a, as an environment that was. Um, somewhat unhealthy um, or uh, inducing pathology. Okay, I wanted to ask you about, uh, there's a lot of historiography on the construction of the modern self. And so the question for me is, you know, and I, and I can see you drawing from some of that, but uh, how is the, how does the, the idea of the modern self and how it's constructed affect how the formulation of the law? Right, well, um, let me say something about the periodization and the concept of the modern here, because that's sort of important to the project as a whole. I titled it Law in the Modern Mind, um, rather deliberately troping on uh, Jerome Frank, who is a legal realist, um, who writes a book in, uh, by, by this, uh, with this title in 1930. Um, he's 
kind of swallowed Freud whole at that point and has decided that the, the sort of Freudian um, psychoanalytic categories uh, help him to sort of make sense of, of legal thought and practice. Um, and, and a lot of um, legal theorists um, and lawyers generally kind of think of him as, as the progenitor of these interdisciplinary uh, uh, connections between law and psychology. And so part of what I'm doing here is calling attention to an earlier period within which lawyers were wrestling with the implications of modern science and modern science with respect to the mind more specifically. And so I'm looking at this earlier period of engagement that produces um, what I discuss as medical jurisprudence in the 19th century is a very rich body of literature that is centrally concerned with, you know, the more that we learn about the mind, don't we have to sort of reconstruct our ways of thinking about the self in law? And that's just the continual conversation that my characters are having across the 19th century. And in many ways, to go back to your question about common sense psychology, that's the body. It's, it's enlightenment. It's a particular kind of enlightenment philosophical discourse coming from the Scottish common sense school of philosophy um, in the 18th century. And that particular formulation of, you know, sort of human nature and responsibility and freedom, uh, that um, kind of school of thought is very congenial to post-revolutionary American thinkers because it's extremely optimistic in its way of conceptualizing human nature and human possibility and our ability to self-improve and maybe even perfect ourselves. And um, that kind of confidence about human nature really fits with sort of this, you know, post-revolution you know, post uh, generation. And they um, uh, kind of have been schooled in it and then sort of adopted as their kind of Reigning paradigm, um, it becomes kind of the presumptive way of thinking about the self in law, and you can kind of see how it gets embedded in the law as you sort of get steeped in the um, uh, the treatise literature. And and so that becomes the sort of key conceptualization that lawyers bring with them into courtrooms, and, and really also the participants in the trials that I look at um, where competence is being challenged. Um, in all of those cases, that's kind of the reigning paradigm. Um, it has all sorts of problems um, uh, that become painfully obvious in the courtroom context, but that's the framework, that's the modern way of thinking that they're um, carrying with them into the courtroom. Um, and uh, similarly, self-understanding of the, uh, the, uh, the, the medical men that come into the courtroom as well think of themselves as even more modern because they have now um, sort of brought to bear uh, medical psychology. So they understand not only the mind in its healthy state, but the mind in its abnormal state and indeed think that studying human nature through the disease to the healthy is exactly the way to understand the normal. And so that's the conversation that's going on under the heading of modern mind in my book. It's this um, post-enlightenment, post-revolutionary um, group of doctors and lawyers that are um, using the tools of, of, of both psychology and medicine uh, to and just the observation of those who are deemed to be mad um, as a basis, um, that's kind of their data for uh, deciding cases um, in everyday legal contests. Now, the, uh, the common sense philosophy held that that human beings had divinely given uh, faculties, rational faculties of the intellect, volition, and the moral sense. And there was, a, like you said, there was, from what you're saying in your book, they had a lot of confidence that rational human beings, rational human beings could make good decisions, would make moral decisions. And in fact, it got to where it's like, if you didn't make a good decision, it, you were not rational. <laughs> that was sort of the, the test. Okay, so um, 
Let me, let's go on to the second chapter, which is about medical jurisprudence and insanity. And as American law was developing all its concepts, there was also this medical view that was coming into focus. There was a lot more work being done on uh, insanity and minds that were not functioning well. And one of the main people in your book is Benjamin Rush. So how did Rush view mental disorders? Well, he's an interesting figure and kind of a transitional character for my book. Um, uh, and he sort of figures this movement in some ways that I'm talking about more generally, which is the sort of liberalizing, the, the, the sort of um, ways in which common sense philosophy displaces the Calvinist framework that you alluded to earlier. So, you know, the Calvinist, very, very crudely, the Calvinist worldview is one that emphasizes, you know, divine determinism, innate depravity, um, and, uh, you know, suggests that human um, goodness is not something that, that we, you know, without the, but for the grace of God, we are all sinners, right? And, and so that's a fairly pessimistic view of human nature. And that whole worldview is being challenged by these, you know, new enlightenment ideas and the common sense view, which is, as you say, you know, enormously, uh, uh, kind of, uh, hopeful in its ways of thinking about human nature. It recasts God as a benevolent father who certainly didn't leave us, you know, bereft of the capacity to realize his, uh, laws, um, and do his will. In fact, all the tools are divine gifts that he has given us. Rationality, freedom, moral sense. And so these faculties of the mind are, you know, central to sort of every person's, uh, mental functioning. And we're assumed to have those or at least the ability to realize those uh, faculties in their best form uh, from birth forward. And so that, you know, is a really very attractive view of human nature. But what it does um, is it sort of begs the question, well, then how do we explain all the people who aren't um, rational, moral um, and seemingly free in their uh, sort of, uh, daily lives? Um, how do we make sense of that as anything but that there's something wrong with their mind? And so the Benjamin Rush is kind of puzzling through those questions, um, uh, you know, as this kind of set of liberalizing forces are, are more generally affecting uh, the cultural context within which he operates as a doctor. Um, he's also sort of obviously um, a central character in the revolutionary struggle. And so what you see happening through focusing on his work is the way in which he's kind of himself making this passage from a Calvinist to a sort of liberal Protestant worldview. He's seemingly staying more in the Calvinist framework himself, but he's very much influenced by these new currents of thought that are medical and scientific in nature. And so he develops this entire project that becomes medical jurisprudence. He's trying to marry the medical and the jurisprudential. He, he thinks that the law is a testing ground for this new science and for the development of the civic project of realizing responsible subjects. Like you must create the sort of um, uh, set of legal and, and governmental institutions that will um, sort of provide the conditions for people to realize um, their best selves to become competent uh, members of the, the population and citizenry. And so he, you know, is, is centrally concerned in all these ways with, you know, he's worried about temperance. Um, he's creating and trying to maintain a, a hospital um, specifically designed for those who are mentally ill. Meanwhile, ministering to his own son who has actually gone mad. And um, so there's kind of a poignant aspect to this entire story simply because he has a very personal investment in this problem of mental unsoundness because it's hit home for him. So that's why he becomes a really 
fascinating character to sort of introduce this problem in uh, the period that I study. Okay, you talk about uh, medical psychologists, uh, psychology, the development of that, and the alienists, and, and then providing them, a, they provided a safety valve for liberal faith in human nature. How did they do that? Well, they were, um, I mean, there's, there's, a body of um, this is a kind of transatlantic discourse, right? And so there's an entire 18th century discourse about um, these new, um, what they're calling the new medical psychology. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a um, very motley group of, of thinkers, some philosophers, some physiologists, and then some people who specialized simply by being what they called mad doctors. They were the ones who were, you know, kind of superintending these different kinds of uh, houses and asylums and hospitals that were specifically intended to treat um, this group of, of, of patients that had previously been understood as kind of maybe supernaturally possessed or otherwise beyond the, the pale of, 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 of any kind of um, medical treatment um, uh, because of the nature of the disturbance that they manifest. The more that that became something that was within the province of medical knowledge and medical study, this group of doctors uh, uh, and scientists uh, claimed that terrain as their own as from um, uh, sort of ministers or other religious figures um, and began to try to create a systematic body of thought that they called medical psychology. And um, you know, a, a number of those doctors um, uh, were uh, sort of um, uh, kind of on the ground in uh, the colonial period and into the um, uh, New Republic, and uh, they formed a cadre, um, especially the ones that, that were in charge of uh, insane asylums as they became um, sort of more and more um, necessary uh, in the new uh uh, newly United States, uh, in almost every state there was at least one state supported and many other private uh, asylums, um, and those who were in charge of them um, created their own community and organization, uh, uh, American Association of Asylum Superintendents, and kind of laid claim to this field uh, of medical uh, psychology and, more specifically, mental alienation, which is a kind of evocative term for what they were seeing, um, which is that people were sort of out of their minds or beside themselves. And so a medical um, uh, sort of psychologist would call this condition mental alienation because these people seem to have lost control of that essential core of their being, their selves. And um, the, the, the project that they were sort of committed to was finding a way to bring people back to themselves through, they believed, asylum treatment, taking them out of their day-to-day, -day, their family dynamics, their own environments, and putting them within these very carefully controlled settings that were these new hospitals, they believed would create the circumstances within which um, they would repair um, uh, uh, these individuals, much in the same way that they were thinking about institutions as working to also um, sort of reform criminals um, and also um, bring those who were outside of the sort of, uh, sort of the discipline of, of the workplace um, through workhouses. These environments were supposed to re um, calibrate human nature, and and so they were of a, a sort of um, peace with this more general optimistic uh, sort of idea about human nature is plastic enough to be uh, improved and perfected with the right circumstances and the right technologies. And so that was their project. 
And in a way, what they were, the connection to the liberal project is that, you know, this, this improving spirit was one that they believed they could participate in and indeed maybe exemplify. You know, if, they, if, if insanity, something that was thought to be sort of an insoluble problem, was something that they could solve, that would be a really magnificent indicator that this Enlightenment project um, that was going to be carried out um, in the American context um, under the kind of sign of self-government was something they would be instrumental in bringing about. Okay, now in the second part, in that second part of your book, you go into, you go to the courtroom and the cases that were presented there, and and the battles that were fought over you know, actual cases and how the law developed in these cases, and how jurists and medical doctors within the courtroom setting. Uh, are also fighting with each other about the limits of human responsibility and capacity and all that. So, but all of this is taking place within what you describe as a developing capitalist marketplace that's changing society. So you, people are behaving differently than they behaved in the past. And the marketplace is creating issues and problems that have not been seen before. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about uh, the market uh, context of this legal wrangling over responsibility and rights and all that? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the challenges of writing this book is, is identifying both the timeless and the time-bound aspects of, you know, free will and determinism is a you know problem that has been uh, on the minds of philosophers uh, uh, since the ancient times to the present. And so, um, and yet I do think that, the, that you can sort of, um, as a historian of ideas, really um, provide some insight into what, you know, aspects of the problem of free will become salient uh, in different periods of time and as they become problematic, in what ways do they become problematic in, in very practical terms. And for me, what was sort of fascinating about looking at this period was that not only do you have this kind of uh, vision of human autonomy is so terribly important to sort of the self-understanding of the society, um, uh, but you also have um, the kind of uh, sort of way of, of, of manifesting your autonomy through um, capitalist accumulation. The idea in this period is that the self-made man is the sort of hero of this republic. Um, and, what becomes painfully obvious as you look at these courtroom cases is realizing that cultural ideal is enormously challenging and more people fail than succeed at it um, if the court docket is any indication. And so running through this confident and optimistic discourse about self-made manhood is a deep appreciation of how much this society that's um, pushing people forward in this way is running them into the ground. And so there's a kind of um, not um, insignificant body of writing, increasingly from these alienists in particular, to suggest that the um, striving that is being encouraged has some really pathological effects, that, that, that people are falling apart, breaking down, um, that the speculation that is so endemic to this market society as people speculate on themselves as well as different kinds of companies and, and, and investments in them, um, the very investment in themselves and the shaky nature of their own prospects is mentally destabilizing in the extreme. And so you have people in the asylum um, uh, registers as they're being uh, 
Is this, they're doing intake of them. What's the descriptor of what, why they're coming to the asylum? Speculative mania. I mean, you, the, any sort of um, uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, kind of aspect of cultural life. You add a mania at the end of it, and you've got someone who belongs in an asylum. So all of these um, sort of uh, exuberant forces that are sort of supposed to be um, motoring the economy are also sort of um, bringing people in droves to asylums um, whose minds are worn out, um, whose nerves are shattered, um, who just feel like they can't quite keep up with the pace of this, you know, expanding, exuberant capitalist society. And so that fascinates me that there's this recognition, um, especially these white property men that are supposed to be the ones that are governing themselves, governing their families and governing the republics. They can't seem to keep it together. <laughs> it's an embarrassment for, you know, American legal liberalism. And it's also just a perplexing, disturbing and an extremely um, painful realization um, uh, for those involved in this, which is pretty much everyone. Okay, we've got a we've got some kind of a siren going behind us. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's go on. But um, these 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 uh, problems were also uh, the cases were also shown in the uh, the were in the newspapers. They were really juicy cases, and uh, the cases that you that you cite are just so interesting and, and dramatic. And so, how many cases did you read before you found these? gems that you have in here? Well, you know, one of the uh, kind of key um, sort of aims of the book is to bring to life the many and varied ways in which capacity was litigated or sanity was litigated in the courtroom. We often think of the only instances in which this is important when insanity sort of um, uh, kind of manifests itself in, in legal cases is, is criminal cases, more specifically homicide trials. That's when you see the insanity plea, and it's often understood quite uh, accurately as a last-ditch effort, um, uh, the last recourse of the criminal defendant who has no other options left, and it's a really successful plea. Uh, so that's kind of where we sort of uh, kind of see insanity um, conventionally in both the historiography and I think in, in uh, contemporary legal theory. Um, what that misses is the cases that you're mentioning, which are, you know, just extraordinarily uh, fascinating and way more common. I mean, it's competence, placing the mind in issue happens all the time on the civil side of the docket. And, you know, some of the cases are fairly mundane, but, you know, when there are famous people and a lot of money, you know, you get the best alienists on both sides testifying, the best and most, you know, sort of dramatic and uh, rhetorically um talented uh, lawyers who come into the courtroom and, you know, it's almost like a movie you're watching or movies. And the, 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 it's almost like a scripted drama in which they play out these uh, sort of competing uh, hypotheses. Is he crazy? Is he sane? And, and each side basically creates a biography of the person's life um, uh, that is intended to sort of serve the legal ends, you know, setting aside a will, upholding a contract, getting out of some sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, liability for civil damages and a tort suit. Um, so there's very motivated storytelling going on in the courtroom. But, you know, they're not just playing immediately uh, to the uh, judge in these situations or even the audience in the courtroom, which is sometimes um, sort of standing room only, but to this press that was also fueling this increasingly uh, sort of almost salacious public interest in these capacity trials because, they often involve extremely famous people like Vanderbilt, um, uh, to take a very notable example. Um, you know, 
the most wealthy man in the history of the country up to that time dies and leaves a will that some of his kids don't like. And so they say he's incompetent, which is sort of an amazing proposition um, uh, with respect to someone that wealthy. But, you know, the uh, stories that get told and the people that get drawn into the narrative um, sort of uh, create what is, you know, gripping um, drama that, that, that the public consumes like we do, you know, any number of shows that we binge watch on TV. That's kind of the way that they took in these trials. And understandably so, as you see what they're about and, and how they play out. Now, there was one of the chapters you talk about testamentary freedom, which is the freedom for someone to be a, a rational person to give away their property to whoever they will. But there were assumptions about what that would entail. And one of the things you say on page 114 was that only persons who could be said to be of sound mind were those who would never execute an inhuman, unjust, or unreasonable will. And there were lots of examples of people cutting their children off or giving their assets to illeg illegitimate children or a slave uh, concubine or uh, doing giving their property to what would be considered at the time not a reasonable decision, right? Uh, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about about the issues about assumptions about in testamentary, testamentary freedom about the rational person and how they would dispose of their estate? Yeah, I mean, those that the, the will cases are the place where I really started this project um, because I was, you know, trying to find places outside of the criminal law where insanity came into um, some consideration and um, will contests by by far had the, you know, sort of, I mean, they both very large in both the treatise literature and in the newspapers. Um, and, and these trials, um, figured this problem that you're articulating about sort of, you know, what, I mean, it's, it's the paradox at the core of, uh, the common sense modeling of the self. The responsible self is the self that has reason, moral sense, and freedom. And someone with reason, moral sense, and freedom is going to do what we would conventionally think people with real moral sense and, and, and freedom do, which is to act like the rest of us do. And so there was a sort of built in problem, um, with this modeling when people started to do what they willed with their own, which wasn't necessarily conventional. And the legal system both wanted to create space for people to sort of vary from what was conventional. That was, after all, why you have a will rather than just letting the property go to the conventional piece of the intestacy law. I mean, there's an intestacy law that says if you don't make a will, these are the people that usually should inherit whatever you have when you die in terms of land and personal property. And here's how it's going to play out in terms of its distribution. So that sort of in the law is the kind of conventional way of distributing your property upon death. But we also built into the law testamentary freedom. If you want to make a will, you want to deviate from that sort of uh, model, go ahead. And giving people the green light to do that um, uh, sort of uh, opened up the possibility that people would, you know, sort of use that freedom in ways that were unconventional. And the question for the court became, when does it become so unconventional that we worry about the sound mind? Because one of the built-in sort of requirements to make a will is that you be of sound mind. You have to say that, you know, as sort of, uh, kind of part of the uh, sort of formulaic uh, sort of uh, kind of uh, documentary record that as being of sound mind, I do the following. 
So it's built into the structure of what it is to have testamentary freedom that you be of sound mind. So the law with one voice is saying do whatever you want, except you have to be of sound mind, which also builds in the possibility that doing what you want, if it's too unusual, might actually show that you're of unsound mind because the whole construct of mental soundness is almost completely identified within the common sense view with conventional rationality. So we're both saying do what you want, except if it looks really unusual, and then we're going to worry about your, your mind being unsound. And that provides, at the practical level, and that's a conceptual problem, that has very practical implications because, it, you know, in an adversarial system, you know, it invites litigation. It invites people to say, yeah, well, there's an opportunity here to sort of take the kind of concept of, of mental soundness and stretch it to fit our case. You know, we have some disappointed heirs here. We have some money to play around with because the estate is something that um, gets drained through this litigation because it basically funds the litigation. And so there's this opportunity within the whole legal construction of testamentary freedom to, you know, sort of bring parties in conflict constantly across the 19th century. And it's all because this enlightenment vision of human nature is sort of rationing up the expectations that we're all rational, free, and moral people mean that human perversity now becomes something that might be evidence of insanity. And the whole concept of insanity has been exploded in such an unmanageable way that these cases cannot be resolved um, except through, you know, sort of this very messy long trial that generates really, you know, more um, conflict than resolution ultimately. I mean, eventually there is some decision that the court comes to but it just perpetuates more litigation going forward because it advertises the opportunity to other people to do the same thing. And these are cases that are in the press every day. Well, the other thing that was interesting in the courtroom setting was also the, the presence of expert, uh, medical expert witnesses and how there were so many different opinions and how there was battle between expert with other experts, but lawyers with experts and the place of the expert in the courtroom, uh, that's an interesting history all by itself. Yes, yes. And it's the, the part of the problem is that, you know, both lawyers and doctors are professionalizing over the course of my period. So, you know, the very idea that there is a sort of terrain that is law and a terrain that is medicine or or psychiatry. I mean, psychiatry doesn't yet exist as a sort of um, autonomous discipline. Um, and, and as I said before, these Doctors that are coming into the courtroom and claiming expertise do so on the basis of the fact that they're in asylums managing them. I mean, that's they they get their expertise through running asylums. And so that's the first generation of doctors. And then they're just sort of increasingly challenged by a second generation of neurologists that are more based in laboratories and, and working with a different set of technologies and methods that aren't necessarily based in observation, but they're more based in sort of um, different kinds of physiological uh, indicators that they use uh, special instruments to test. And so their um, sort of frame of reference is very different in terms of where they derive their expertise and, and, and how they understand themselves as scientists. And so there's a, a conflict within medicine over the course of this period because the sort of basis of expertise is far from settled. Um, and it's worth noting that continues to be a source of great conflict to the present. So um, the Cases about the place the mind in issue also place expert knowledge in issue, of course, across this period. And so um, because 
the boundaries of insanity are themselves being constantly contested. So too are the boundaries of expertise. And so you have this kind of running set of questions that never get answered. Who are the really insane? There are lots of people that are eccentric and weird, but who are the really insane? And then they say almost immediately on the heels of that, we're the experts. How do we figure that one out either? And there are no established answers that courts and legal um, commentators come to about this. They ultimately look to the adversarial trial as a space within which we'll continue to sort of review and revise our conceptions of mind as expert testimony is articulated in this context. And we as lawyers will always be kind of a conservative force in relationship to these uh, medical ideas and these novel theories. We're not going to adopt any of them uh, um, or ossify them within the legal system because if we do that, we're going to basically sort of um, cast in stone something that is constantly subject to revision. And so the courts are very cautious about just um, sort of grabbing onto any of these theories, and they prefer to let them play out. But at the same time, they also need some practical rules. So they create legal tests that the doctors hate because they think the doctors are being, they think as doctors they're being pushed out of um, uh, the space in which they have uh, special expertise. So they're offended by these legal tests. And so the tussle really never goes away, but there is a way in which you see a separation of, well, there's a medical question and then there's a legal question. And what lawyers and these judges in particular are trying to do over the course of the period that I study are to articulate a set of pragmatic legal rules that don't promise to resolve the underlying existential problems or medical questions that these doctors are debating, but try to pull from that what they can towards answering a practical set of legal questions. And so the legal tests are unambiguously there to resolve a problem that doesn't maybe admit of immediate resolution. Right. So what I, so what I see is the is that the attorneys, uh, the, law, the law was coming up with pragmatic models of uh, personhood so that they basically concluded that a man could do what he wanted with his own and exercise in, his individual privilege of having preferences, preferences and prejudices without any further reason. So that in a way, freedom, the freedom of the individual trumped mental capacity. Sort of, yeah. Well, I mean, I think what happens, which sort of fascinates me, is that um, this enlightenment modeling, the common sense modeling of the sort of rational, moral, free, willing subject um, uh, is constantly um, what counts as, as rational action gets expanded to include a lot of things that are prejudiced or eccentric. The the, what I call the default legal person that is built on this enlightenment common sense idea, that vision of competent action or the competent person is constantly being expanded to sort of incorporate eccentric and somewhat irrational ways of being short of whatever it is we want to call mental unsoundness or insanity. Um, so insanity in the legal sense, whatever the doctors may say, is something that goes so far outside the boundaries of what a recognizably sort of competent person would do. And and that becomes more and more um, capacious as we admit that what is competent or rational for one person is not rational for another person. So more and more they try to individuate the analysis in the following way. They say, well, you know, it might be insane for one person to do that if they had always been sort of a, a sober person and all of a sudden they're, you know, sort of, taking off their clothes in the middle of the street and, and running around and screaming and yelling, that might be a, a sign that someone has deviated from their normal way of being. A radical change in character 
um, means that that person is no longer the same person. So you, the, the kind of thing you need to manifest to be insane in the legal sense is a deviation from your own normal ways of being to such an extent that we don't see you and your actions anymore. So um, uh, that's how they try to kind of individuate the analysis so that we're not just imposing a set of, you know, conventional ideas about rationality. We want to allow the greatest bounds of freedom for you to be you and me to be me um, by testing you against your own self over time. And only when we see a radical break do we begin to worry that there's some part of you that's, you know, gone, that you've been alienated, you know, that there's mental alienation there rather than you acting. And so that's a sort of fix that I think the legal system comes up with to sort of deal with this conundrum without imposing conventional ideas of rationality to the point where pretty much everyone's in, in sort of uh, the asylum because, you know, who doesn't have an irrational moment um, or who doesn't have uh, periods of time when they sort of uh, deviate from conventional ways of being. Now you have a ch you have the next chapter you're talk you're talking about contracts and there's some really interesting things in there but I want to get for the in interest of time I want to get down to this chapter about the, the consideration of love which is talks about how these ideas about the self decisions making insanity competence entered into premarital contracts divorces people trying to get a divorce or uh, contracts for care and how the market, especially in the contracts for care, how the market and the law were in the most intimate relationships, entered into the most intimate relationships, that, that, that before it had just been left sort of in its own, um, you know, sequestered area. So can you talk, talk about some of this, uh, some of the issues with the, for the premarital contracts, the divorce laws, and the contract for care? Yeah, well, it, it goes back to some of the things that you were asking about earlier with respect to sort of, you know, the ways in which um, uh, this period in terms of uh, kind of the conception of a uh, legal person was affected by, you know, the expansion of the market and, and uh, uh, capitalism as a historical force. And it's often thought that we had in the 19th century the development of separate spheres between the home and the market uh, and uh, that the home was a space that was a um, kind of preserved from market logics and um, sort of competitive uh, uh, capitalist uh, um, uh, relations. And uh, what, what these capacity cases allow us to see is how um, interconnected the worlds of the home and the market were, how impossible it was to separate out these spheres, um, that there wasn't sort of a, a realm, um, the marketplace um, uh, ideas bled into all sorts of intimate relations, and so too did market relations partake of, of sort of the, you know, sort of emotional um, uh, connections and, and attachments uh, that we usually uh, uh, think were relegated in this period to the uh, space of the home. And so I'm interested in that kind of um, sort of uh, interconnection and, 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 and the overlaps um, in terms of both the logics and the, and the, and the, the expectations that people had of these relationships. Um, because I think the, the breaches of trust in the workplace um, and in the home were sources of concern for uh, my judges. Um, and what they recognized over and over again was how vulnerable people were. There's this modeling of the self as autonomous and capable of, of, of managing his or her own relations with other people, 
um, that is constantly uh, abandoned by the realization of, of all these kinds of connections um, and expectations that we have of other people. Um, and you really can't judge capacity outside of these relationships. You know, how much mind you need to have to make a contract? It depends on who you're making that contract with and what that contract is about. If it's about, you know, ribbons, one set of uh, assumptions might uh, come into play. If it's about, you know, who's going to take care of you as you lose the ability to sort of manage, you know, the day-to-day affairs of your life, including getting dressed in the morning, you know, a different set of expectations uh, and rules have to come into play. And so courts are obviously sensitized to these very different contexts within which questions of consent uh, come into play, and that affects how they think about um, uh, uh, what counts as a sort of, you know, adequate amount of consideration to support a contract, what counts as evidence of consent, um, and uh, what circumstances they're going to see something called undue influence overwhelming the free will of one of the contracting parties. And so you see throughout these cases, the sort of underlying thing that I'm most fascinated in bringing to light is how acutely aware these judges are that the vision of autonomy is one that is falsified by everyday um, uh, sort of uh, life, um, especially as one gets older um, and loses the ability to sort of uh, support themselves, let alone the other members of their households. You have these, you know, cases where, you know, the, the actual terms of the deal are a contract between someone whose um, capacities are failing, making a contract with someone who's going to take care of them, and there's an imbalance there built into the very contract itself, and courts are in a bind because if they don't effectuate the contract, they're leaving the person as vulnerable, but if they do effectuate the contract, they're sort of overestimating the amount of confidence that person has to bargain for themselves. And so it's a, it's a very um, kind of poignant uh, sort of case study of, of just sort of how far we tend to fall short of the assumptions the law has built in in its ways of uh, uh, modeling contractual behavior. There seemed to be a real uh, romantic view of intimate relationships, that children would take care of the elderly parents just out of love, that people would marry out of love, that husbands would take care of their insane wives out of love, and that there was no need for these The law came into it, it sort of tainted this romantic notion of people uh, having this virtue uh, of, but the families that you talk about, it was obvious that they were highly dysfunctional and and (laughs) everybody had their own own little interest of what they wanted from mom and dad or from their spouse or whatever. Yeah, well, love is, is a... Um, volatile force in my story. Um, it's clearly understood to be part of normal mental functioning, that you have the capacity for love, uh, to love others, to have them love you. That's obviously part of what people think is uh, a um, normal aspect of, of the human experience, of human relations. And yet love is something that can destabilize the mind and particularly cloud the thinking so that you're not a rational and consenting subject. And so that's why both marriage and these contracts for care become very difficult. And, and wills more generally also have sometimes the language of love built into them um, uh, as, as reasons for giving money or reasons for agreeing to a contract. Um, sometimes the consideration is said to be a penny in love or something like that. They need to sort of get something in there that makes it sound like a, a deal in the conventional sort of market-based sense, but really it's based in love. And so love gets 
folded into other forms of value um, in a kind of market logic, but it obviously doesn't have the same significance as money and um, ought not to in the minds of most of my judges. And so they're constantly stumbling over love as something that is, you know, important to the story, but also threatening to the model of rationality and autonomy that they want to um, maintain and uh, also, you know, when they see signs that that's not what you have, when love has overwhelmed reason, they want to protect the person who is overwhelmed or manipulated on the basis of love. So love is a is a treacherous force in these cases and constantly embarrasses a, a legal system that promises to um, base itself on on consent uh, because uh, it's not entirely clear when and whether love should be a motivating factor in consenting and when love actually um, uh, poisons consent in some important way. Uh, and, uh, so, so that sort of really intrigued me. Um, and there's a lot sort of in the romantic discourse you allude to, um, about the ways in which love, you know, can be something that is closely and dangerously connected with insanity. You know, you can go mad. I mean, disappointed affections is also, if you look in the asylum registers, what's another, and speculative mania is one big one. Disappointed affections is another one. So people who have allowed themselves to be overtaken by their emotions and particularly romantic feelings are sometimes the ones who lose their capacity to reason in a way that makes them insane. Okay. Um, the, the last chapter you talk about tort law and liability, and I want to just touch on um, the movement from faith of fault and responsibility to insurance and risk. Right. that you talk about. Can you kind of give a, a little description of what that move was? Well, I think this is a kind of a historiographic uh, intervention ultimately. Um, there's a conventional story within the legal historiography that over the course of the 19th century, largely in response to the exigencies of capitalist development, you see the legal system moving away from attention to subjective intent, um, whether in the meeting of the minds in contract or even in criminal law, um, in terms of, you know, evil intent, um, these kinds of um, interrogations of, of the mind um, uh, are, are, are too um, uh, insoluble uh, or, or, or time consuming or, or both um, to uh, uh, be capable of management in the context of, of of the volume of cases that a legal system is asked to resolve. And so they increasingly move to objective standards um, that uh, sort of posit a reasonable person in place of any individual and ask a jury to determine, you know, whether that person um, deviates from the reasonable person's standard or not. Um, in the context of torts, that means that if you um, act in a way that deviates from the reasonable person that generates civil liability. Um, if you've done what any reasonable person would do, then you're insulated from liability. And that takes us out of this messy world of capacity litigation that I describe in this book. Um, and what I suggest in this last chapter is there is this kind of general movement that one can trace through tort law in the late 19th century. To some extent, therefore, I say that the 19th century um, historiography on this score is getting at something that's real. But what I also seek to show is that that's incomplete, that movement from a fault-based, subjective way of thinking about legal responsibility to an objectivist understanding where we just um, uh, sort of posit a reasonable person, ask the jury to think about that person rather than the particular and peculiar person that we have before us in court. Um, uh, 
you know, what, what, what you see if you look more specifically at this question of insanity is that even in the tort context, which is I think where you see the most general movement towards that more objective way of thinking about legal personhood, um, even there, they still admit the possibility that if you're insane, you can't be held to the standard of the reasonable person. So that means we haven't completely replaced, you know, individuals with a reasonable person standard. We still continue to say, all right, in some cases we can't apply the reasonable person standard because this person doesn't have a reason or enough reason to even be held to that standard. So it suggests that this sort of move from subjective to objective is incomplete. And even as we move from kind of, um, and moreover, as we move from a fault-based to a risk and insurance-based model, even if you look in insurance law and insurance cases, there too you see the need to get behind this objective standard and look at sort of the underlying question of whether or not the person is fairly and justly held to be competent enough to be um, uh, asked to meet the standards uh, of the objective reasonable person. And so there's a kind of basic inability of the legal system to fully embrace the reasonable person and its objectivist um, sort of modeling of liability, um, uh, to put it in the language of Oliver Wendell Holmes, to think away consciousness. We're just not going to get away from this messy set of questions about human responsibility by just sidestepping it with a reasonable man. Um, what you see in case after case into the present is that when we open up the question of whether or not this person really ought to be treated like the rest of us, we first have to answer that question in the messy ways that uh, we developed in the 19th century. We just can't get away from it. And, and you, know, you don't have to look far from uh, the recent past to see cases like the Brooke Astor will contest where, you know, the question of whether or not she was competent generates exactly the kind of um, legal morass that I show in the 19th century will contest. And Sumner Redstone, the sort of media mongol uh, of the uh, sort of, um, uh, Viacon, uh, corporation is, is another person whose competence when it was called into question generated all the lawyering up on both sides and all the messy, embarrassing, uh, sort of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, unveiling of, of private family life, um, with almost exactly the same lack of resolution that we see in the 19th century. So once you open up this sort of question of, of, of the mind, when you place the mind in issue, I suggest um, there's a set of really insoluble uh, legal and uh, cultural questions uh, that um, once you take the genie out of the bottle, you cannot go back to uh, the uh, less messy world that you had before that. Okay, Susanna, it's we're out of time. I'm sorry, but it's it's you've got so much more to say. I know, and I'd like to hear more. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. You can reach me through my website at lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs> <laughs>